Father, thank you for this beautiful morning. Thank you for this church, uh, this building, and more than that, um, your grace, which covers the people that enter into this building, uh, that we share in common uh, the eternal reality of your Son and the glory, which is our hope, which is promised us through his finished work. Uh, May you bless our day together as we worship, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, as we begin this morning uh, by beginning an overview of the revelation of your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, it was over a year ago that uh, we commenced a study or an overview, really, uh, of the Bible. We started in Genesis, and uh, we've worked our way through over these last 13 months to where we enter in now uh, to an overview of the book of Revelation, um, a focus on um, eschatology, a theological term for last things. Um, and it's a focused attention on the uh, consummation of the kingdom of God. Oh, is that what that is? I, I, I didn't know if it was an earthquake or what. I, I don't know. What, what, do we have a rock band here? Why do we need that thing? <laughs> anyway, eschatology, a, a focus attention on things related to the consummation of the kingdom covering the second coming, um, also known as the parousia of Christ, uh, the final resurrection, heaven, hell, uh, new heaven, and a new earth. Um, Eschatology, as you probably are very well aware, um, is an area for which there is immense disagreement um, among Christians But it's important that we remember that uh, Revelation is not only a a prophetic book, it's a book that is is written with a a certain literary style or or genre of literature known as apocalyptic. Um, That that is one of the keys to rightly interpret this book. Um, In apocalyptic, it means an uncovering or an unveiling is what it means. So it's language which is heavily symbolic. Um, And if you were with us as we studied at least the first 15 chapters of Revelation, we we tried to make that clear, or I tried to make that clear as we worked our way through that book. Very symbolic, and it's not meant to be interpreted in a a wooden, literal sense. Um, It's full of imagery, and it's to be interpreted figuratively. Um, So the key to proper interpretation is to view the language, which, again, is imaginative language, um, and see how it is used elsewhere in the Bible, particularly uh, books like Ezekiel and, and Daniel, uh, parts of Joel. Uh, we see apocalyptic language um, throughout. Not, not imagery from our modern-day newspapers, amen? But from the Bible itself. Now, I want to begin, I don't know how far we're going to get today. We're doing an overview, and I kind of want to cover the different views um, of interpretation. I want to cover the different views of the millennium, um, 
things of that nature so that we get a kind of a better grasp of it. And then next week will be our last week. And I'll, I'll try to show you, I think, how the, the book is laid out. And the main emphasis of which is the glory of Jesus Christ through the revelation. So four basic views. There's the preterist view, the futurist view, the historicist view, and the idealist view. Those are the f- more, four main interpretations. There, there are others. Um, there's like a hyper-preterist view. I don't even want to get into all that, really, um, and all the problems involved. But, so we'll stick to the four main. Uh, preterist simply means past. And, and, and I'll be honest with you. Uh, it is a view, for the most part, which interprets Revelation as having been fulfilled, for the most part, um, in 70 A.D. Personally, if there was proof that this book was written before 70 A.D., I would be a partial preterist, for, for sure. But there is no, there's been some good stuff written and dating uh, that book, but uh, I think you know where, where I stand and where we stand, the idealist view. But anyway, preterist means past. Um, the, the, for the most part, a revelation was fulfilled by the end of the first century uh, with, a heavy, with a heavy focus on the destruction of Jerusalem, um, the leveling of the temple, and the million-plus Jews that were slaughtered in that time. So to the Jew or to anyone reading who lived at that time, that would have been viewed as a very cataclysmic event. No doubt about it. So that's the preterist view. It simply means past. Um, Futurist view of of Revelation is a series of events that will precede the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they believe that those those things recorded, um, for the most part, have not yet taken place and will unravel just before the time of Christ's return, specifically in that seven-year period before uh, Christ returns. So that's the futurist view. The, the historicist view begins in the first century up to about the fifth chapter. And then the pattern changes to a schematic approach in chapter six and following um, with a, descript- a descriptive picture of events throughout history that take place. So many um, historicists will take Revelation and they'll look at certain events throughout time and say, you know, this was this and this that took place and this time was the fulfillment of this and so on. And then there's the idealist view. <clears throat> That's what um, I, 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 or we in the leadership of this church anyway um, adhere to. Um, and we came to conclude corporately over probably a two-plus year period of time of focused study on the book. I had already landed there, and I didn't want to just press that on the leaders, and they studied, and we, we landed there together. But idealists, the idealist view believes the book um, to be uh, written in symbolic, apocalyptic style, describing periods of conflict as well as, well as periods of revolution, uh, uh, resolution taking place continually um, throughout church history. Another key is that uh, it's not written chronological form. It's not written, recorded in chronological form, but rather declaring uh, the, fundament, the fundamental message of, of Christ's victory in the midst of trial. 
in the midst of tribulation and in the midst of persecution. So uh, any Christian at any period of time can pick up and read the book of Revelation. And what's the promise? Here it is, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his, to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So there's this great blessing attached to those who read and understand um, this prophecy. And... I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, but I think one way to rightly understand this book is to adhere to three key principles of interpretation. And number one, that, that is that the book of Revelation is a literal letter. It's an epistle. So it's written to a particular audience. Just like Romans, we're studying Romans. It was addressed to the church at Rome, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians. I mean, all of these books are written to a particular people of a particular time. So Revelation was not written to us, but it was written for us. Amen? Fair to say? Romans wasn't written to us. Philippians wasn't written to us. It's written for us. So if we can keep in mind that it is a literal letter to a particular audience, that is the seven churches in Asia Minor, um, addressing their real-life situation and the imminent circumstances confronting them. Um, that is one key that will, will keep us from wandering way off base, way off track here. Uh, number two is that Revelation is a prophecy, uh, both, both foretelling the future and foretelling uh, the Word of God. And it's providing for us uh, um, these continual illusions, allusions, not illusions, allusions to the Old Testament. Pictures that take us back. And to, to really understand this prophecy, we, we must understand the imagery um, used in the Old Testament. So number one, it's a, an epistle. Number two, it's a prophecy. And number three, it's apocalyptic. Again, a, a, a style of writing um, that seeks to communicate symbolically. Very important. Symbols, imagery. And apocalyptic um, language was a, a, a very popular style from, uh, of writing <clears throat> from uh, 200 B.C. to 200 A.D. So um, everyone knew it um, and understood that particular style. Um, throughout the book of Revelation, um, numbers, for instance, um, seek to convey something very significant. As we read throughout, we see the number seven. Big number, amen? We read of seven churches, seven golden lampstands, seven stars, seven torches, seven spirits of God, seven eyes, seven seals, seven angels, seven trumpets. How many spirits of God? Seven? <laughs> Imagery. It means perfection or completeness. We read the number 12. There's 12 apostles, 12 tribes, 12 crowns, 12 gates, 
12 pearls, 12 gems, 12 foundations. 24 elders, 144,000 people, 10 horns, 10 kings, 10 days. So it's, it's, a, it's a book that's filled with symbols that are in motion. Numbers, colors, animals, beasts, really weird beasts. Dragons and all this crazy imagery. So this revelation is also a revelation that was seen, which I think is a key. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He gave him to show. So all that to say, we, we have to read this book on its own terms and not ours. And if you weren't with us, when we did Revelation, I did uh, two weeks of introduction on Revelation. I went back and listened to it recently. It's really super informative. Um, it covers a lot of ground in those, two, in those two weeks. So the basic structure of Revelation is what's known as recapitulation. And it's, it's progressive, and it's, it's also in a parallel form. So we're seeing seven pictures or seven images of the, the glory of Christ, the victory of Christ, um, and the persecution of the church, God's judgment on the world, in, in seven different grand pictures that parallel one another, and it's simply the same story from a different angle, from a different vantage point. It's like watching a football game with all the cameras. They have cameras every. I love football. Love it. And I love watching football at home more than going to a game. Even if I got to be on the sideline, I'd, I'd prefer to watch it at home. Because you don't miss anything. They can recall any play from any angle. And that's kind of what we're seeing. Now they have the camera that slides on cables over an aerial view. And that's what Revelation is. It's just the same picture from different perspectives. And uh, that's another important key in rightly interpreting um, this book. So it's constantly covering the same common ground. I'm surveying it from a different vantage point. And on occasion, we gain further insight as to those paralleling uh, pictures. So as you simply read through the book of Revelation, we see the event of final judgment and final salvation repeating itself seven times. Seven times. That perhaps says something. And many people have trouble with the book of Revelation because I believe that they approach it from the wrong end. People spend more time trying to look for Antichrist than seeing Christ in the text. I think that's fair to say. That's not to go on the attack, but especially the last 30, 40 years. You know, if you, if you go to Revelation 13 too, don't go there, but, and you start asking, you know, what do the bear's feet mean here? Okay, now you're focusing in on the minutia, and that's not how you read apocalyptic. I have two books. I think they're a thousand pages each on uh, extra biblical literature, most of which is apocalyptic. Man, when you read it, you get it. When you read that stuff, you see how this is to be interpreted. This is no different. So Revelation, um, as I said many times, um, in, as, as we were studying through it, is a picture book and not a puzzle book. 
A lot of people want to put it as a puzzle, putting all these pieces together and they read their newspaper and try to, to puzzle out everything that's going on in the world today. James Stuart Russell, um, he, he's quoted as saying this, Revelation is not like a telescope, but is like a kaleidoscope. Remember kaleidoscopes? All those whirly images. and That's, that's how you see or, or to read this book. It's imagery. And generally speaking, you can divide the book in half. Chapters uh, 1 through 11 is really viewed from the perspective of the conflict that is set against the church from perspective of earth. Chapter 12 to 22, for the most part, covers that same conflict um, against the background of the ultimate heavenly conflict where there's actually a peeling back of another veil. For instance, when you get to chapter 12, it says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, cast them into earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So here here we see Another veil torn back. And we see the heavenly conflict of Satan and his armies coming against Jesus Christ. And as it goes on to say, um, those who are in Christ. So that's the heavenly conflict that, that begins to, to, to be unveiled in chapter 12 and following. So as we look at it, The book of Revelation is also kind of broken up into seven sections, as I said, that examine the entire period between the first and second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, again, stressing a a different angle or a different emphasis um, as as you read those. And we covered a lot of that. And one of these days, I'll go back and finish that. I don't think it'll be on Sunday mornings, but sometime, chapter 16 uh, to the end. So again, that's known as recapitulation, from where we get recap. Or, you know, to sum things up once again, again, here's another picture of the same event. So there you have the basic thesis of the book covering the same period, the last days, again, from different angles. You know, some have asked this question. They've asked, what if seven is a key to structuring the book as a whole? And I think it's a great, sensible question. Seven days in a week. Seven represents completeness or wholeness, perfection, fulfillment. Okay, so there, there's your four main views. Um, and there's some principles from the idealist view and how to interpret um, this book. Now, as I said, among Christians, there, there's probably more disagreement over eschatology um, than any other doctrine, or doctrines combined, really, for the most part. And it's chiefly because 
of the understanding of the time and nature of the what? The millennium. The millennium. As well as the relationship of ethnic Israel um, and the church. So, in Revelation 20... We don't have time to read all of this, but he writes, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his right hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not, what? Deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. He goes on. Um, They came to, uh, for instance, verse 4, I saw souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Verse 6, blessed and holy, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Set verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations. So, A lot has been said about the millennium, which is a thousand, um, all of which comes from Revelation 20. So, millennial views are drawn from this one chapter. Um, And there's three views regarding the millennium, three main views. And again, there's others, but I don't think they're worth our time this morning. But um, all three of these views, you have premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And all three agree that Christ will return and that there will be a great and final judgment. And, and this is a, another reason we don't separate from our brothers. If you have some dispensational, premillennial friend who you know, is always interpreting Revelation with, with the newspaper, CNN, I mean, look. You can lovingly point these things out and point out the view that you adhere to. I mean, if it's different, and I hope it is. But, but man, don't divide over this stuff or go on the attack. You know, it's not worth the time of day, number one, and it's not glorifying to Christ. People who spend all this time with such you know, such courage behind their computer screen, blogging and attack, it's so cowardly. Please, I don't want our church to be like Our church used to be like that. I, I didn't know it, but it was. Don't be like that. For Peter's sake. <laughs> so they all agree that Christ will return. There will be a final judgment. All agree that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But there are some differences. Pretty major differences. Okay, for instance, we look at premillennialism. 
Premillennialism teaches that uh, the world will get increasingly more and more evil um, over time, and then Christ physically will return to set up a literal, physical kingdom lasting a literal 1,000 years in literal Jerusalem from a literal throne. The glorified Christ sitting on a literal throne, that is hard to conceive. Now, there's two forms, two major forms of premillennialism. One is historic premillennialism. The other is dispensational premillennialism. Anybody confused yet? Both versions believe that Christ's return will be preceded by a seven-year tribulation that will mark the beginning of this thousand-year reign, which will give a good indication of when Jesus will come back is when the seven-year tribulation... But Jesus said, no man knows the hour. Anyway, uh, not all historic premillennialists believe that, um, to their credit, that it's a literal seven years. Dispensational premillennialists do. So the clearest definition... You say, well, what's the difference between historic and dispensational? The clearest uh, distinction between the two is that historic premillennialism sees the church as spiritual Israel. Dispensationalists see a distinction between ethnic Israel and the church of Jesus Christ. And there's some that are very extreme. As though there's two ways to be saved, which is ridiculous. So pre simply means... Christ returns prior to the establishment of a literal kingdom on this literal earth, literally reigning with a political kind of kingdom. And some believe that there'll be a temple rebuilt, that the sacrificial system will be reinstituted, which personally I think is blasphemous. If, if he's the once and for all sacrifice, all that stuff pointed to him. Anyway, so that, that's premillennialism in a nutshell. Secondly is the amillennial view, um, which teaches that the millennium is essentially uh, spiritual. It was established when Christ first came and will be consummated fully in a new heaven and a new earth when he returns. So, amillennialism is really a post-millennial view. In other words, Christ returns after the millennium. But ah in, in millennial is really misleading. Um, number one, it means without or no millennium. Um, and that's why it's someone mis- that, that term is somewhat misleading. Um, I am what we would refer to as an amillennialist. That's how we view it as a whole. You may or may not disagree with it, and that's fine. But you're going to have to conclude by way of the scripture um, and not our own ideals. 
Um, secondly, we also view mo- the, the millennium as not a literal thousand years, but simply a long period of time. It's symbolic. Thousand is symbolic, just like seven is symbolic, or twelve is symbolic, or 144,000 is symbolic. Thousand is also symbolic. So, ah, meaning no or non, like in uh, amoral, or in uh, ah, as in amusement, meaning without, without thinking. Um, We're tagged as believing that there's no millennium. But I think it's more correct to say that we believe in a realized millennium. A current reality. That again, it's a spiritual kingdom established by Christ. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? If I cast out demons by the finger of God, what? The kingdom is what? It's upon you because the king came. And when the king came, he established his kingdom. Now, some all-millennialists agree with premillennialists that uh, the, the world will continue to get worse and worse until final judgment. Um, others agree that, uh, that evil and the depths of evil will, will kind of ebb and flow throughout the millennial reign. Um, I personally believe that, that. I personally believe that it will ebb and flow. Times of increase, times of decrease, whatever. You, you can agree with that or not. It, do, it doesn't really matter. And then there's post-millennialism, which uh, teaches and agrees with amillennialism uh, that the, the, the millennium is not a literal thousand years. It's figurative. It is simply a long period of time uh, where, where Christ will literally... Uh, not where he literally reigns on the earth as premillennialists believe, but it's a spiritual millennium, lasting, again, a long period of time. Not where Christ is physically ruling from Jerusalem. Now, the distinctive mark of postmillennialism is that prior to Christ's return, the, the gospel will progress and will have a gospelized, largely Christianized population worldwide prior um, to his return. That's one of the key beliefs of post-millennialism, that things will get better and better and better. Uh, in, in the gospel, in the church, as it's proclaimed, you'll see more and more converts, uh, a certain Christianized period of time um, during that millennial reign, and then Christ returns in glory and in judgment. So post simply means um, after, after the millennium. Now, amillennialists can also believe, there's no reason, no theological reason that an amillennialist couldn't believe that the world will get better and better before Christ returns. So, so in summary, pre, Christ returns before and then sets up a literal kingdom. Post, Christ returns after a millennial period, which is a long period of time to establish the new heaven and the new earth. In other words, to consummate the already established kingdom. And then all millennialism is basically the same. It was established at his first coming. It will be consummated at his second. Uh, evil will ebb and flow for the most part. And uh, I think one proof of the experience of Christians during this time 
is that they're part of the kingdom and part of the tribulation at the same time. Okay, notice what John said back in chapter 1, in verse 9. He said, I, John, your brother and partner in the, what? In the tribulation and the, what? And the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So, there's tribulation for the believer. And we're also partners in the kingdom at the same time. The already and the not yet, the already established, not yet fully consummated. It's a term used today. So, that leads to a question that many have. Secret rapture. You were thinking that, weren't you? Well, the question is, does the Bible even teach a secret rapture? Sorry. Some people think it does. And they get it from uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. Take a look at that. 1 and 2 Thessalonians are also... um, really take a strong view of the second coming of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4... And in, in, in this, is, this is where premillennial dispensational rapture theories um, are drawn from. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up, raptured, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The first event right there is that the Lord will descend. Okay? So we're going to break this down a little bit. With the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet. Now, as we study through Revelation, we see that there is a last what? A last trumpet. A last trumpet. We studied in Revelation. The last trumpet is the final judgment of Christ. Second event, the dead in Christ will rise, meaning every believer who's ever died throughout time are with the Lord, but their body's in the grave, or it's been annihilated, or it's dissolved into dust, whatever the case. It's been lost at sea, but we know that when Christ returns, the lost will give up the dead. Or the sea will give up the dead. Their bodies will be physically raised and joined with their spirit, which now exists in what's known as the intermediate state. A time between when you, this body dies, you're a believer, this body dies, you go be with the Lord, that's the intermediate state before the resurrection. So they're presently with Christ. Now when Christ returns, at the same time, those who are living on the earth, when the last trumpet sounds, they will experience a new body, verse 17. And they'll be caught up together with them who are being resurrected. 
Because these bodies can't rise into the clouds, let alone into heaven. Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom. So these bodies have to be transfigured, transformed. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last what? Trumpet. At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So not all sleep here simply means not all will die, but they'll be transformed in a nanu second. And this will occur at the last trumpet sound. And it's very important. Last means last. Last means last. Not second to last. Because with a rapture theory, there's a trumpet, there's a last trumpet, and then Jesus comes again, so he comes back twice. He comes secretly to catch up all these believers. Then we go away for seven years, and then he comes again with the last, last trumpet. So there's the last and then the last, last, and then he unleashes judgment. So the Bible... This is, here's, this is very important. The Bible teaches clearly that there will be Christians living on the earth when Christ returns in glory. If you look at Matthew 13 and teaching of Christ. Beginning in verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the masters, the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do, do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in the gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So the wheat represents God's elect. Okay, good seed. In other words, saved people living on the earth when he returns. Are they going to be raptured out before that? Not according to this parable. Verse 30, let both of them grow until the harvest. Gather the weeds first, burn them, gather the wheat into my barn. So believers, saying believers will live alongside of the wicked until the day of his harvest. Now, another verse that is used for a secret rapture comes from Matthew 24. Two men will be in the field. You've heard this, right? One will be taken and one left. It's 2440. Two men will be grinding. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. They say that that's the rapture. 
But, beloved, what Jesus is teaching there is, is not describing a secret rapture. This is final judgment. This is not the time where he comes and takes you know, some away in a secret rapture and then comes back and sets up a political kingdom. It's judgment. One's taken away in judgment. And the other's left on what will be a new what? A new heaven and a new earth. So I think they mix it up when they say taken away in safety is really taken away into judgment. Because when he comes, he's setting up a new heaven and a new earth. That, I want to be left here. <laughs> so the last trumpet's the last trumpet. There aren't two last trumpets. And you know... Just in case you don't know, there was no teaching of a secret rapture before 1830. And I don't really have time to go into any of that, but there wasn't. So that, that is a very popular teaching. You probably know that today. Uh, re- a secret rapture. Um, I was listening to my radio next to my bed just, I think it was yesterday morning. Whenever, but it was, they gave a scenario, like a little snippet of a play that they're going to be having at this one particular church. And, you know, the person saying, well, I don't want to believe in Jesus. I'll believe in Jesus later on. And, and all of a sudden there's a sound. Where did everybody go? Where's my mom? And then all of a sudden there's this broken crying and she's, now I believe and now I believe and as though there's like this second chance type of thing, you know. And that'll scare some people into believing in Jesus, you know, so that you're not left behind type of thing. But, uh, you know, and that was a a popular fictional series, Left Behind series, have you heard of that? So you don't want to be left behind is the thing. And uh, dispensational... Premillennialism, dispensation means economy of time. And um, they believe most that there's like seven dispensations. Okay? There's the dispensation of innocence in the Garden of Eden. There's the dispensation of conscience, which means the time of prior to the flood. Uh, the dis, the dispensation of human government from the time of Noah to Babel. Tower of Babel. The dispensation of promise, which is Abraham to Egypt. Then the dispensation of law from Moses to John the Baptist. Number six is the dispensation of grace, the church age. And then the seventh dispensation is a literal millennial kingdom. Okay? And and, and that view which was very much popularized by um, Schofield in the Schofield Reference Bible, which you've probably heard of, um, was brought back to life and revived by the works of Hal Lindsey in the 1970s with the late great planet Earth and then by uh, the guy who wrote uh, Left Behind. So, that, that's anyway, that's where that comes from. Um, those are some of the um, um, different views. We're running out of time here. There's a lot, a lot to be said. I'll try to cover more of that next week. And I guess we'll, we'll, we'll take our talk into um, how, how some interpret 
this book and how premillennialists and those who believe that there's a distinction between ethnic Israel and the church and anyone who believes that God has one people, they refer to people like me or others as replacement theologians. We replacement theology, that the church replaces Israel, ethnic Israel. The church doesn't replace ethnic Israel. Israel, true Israel, are those who are in who? Christ, the true Israelite. Because if you ask the question, who's true Israel? Who's the true Israelite? Jesus. He's the only one. And unless you're in him, you're not Israel. So the true Israel of the Old Testament was the true church, and the true church of the New Testament is true Israel. There's a one people of God. There is no distinction. We are one in Christ. True Israelites. Praise God. And that's, oh, you're an anti-Semite. No, I'm not. I believe the Bible. And I have a covenant, I adhere to a covenant hermeneutic. Not a hyper-covenant hermeneutic, but a covenant hermeneutic. So I just gave you kind of a background of, since we're out of time, of, of the seven dispensations. If you remind me next week, I'll start with a covenant hermeneutic and how it differs from uh, these seven dispensations. In other words, God's always had one plan. That's it. And then we'll pick up from there, and I don't know how far we'll go. Maybe do an outline of how the book is laid out. Is that fair enough? Right. Any comments or questions? It's a, a, a millennial. A, capital A. All right, beloved. Lord, we do thank you for all of Scripture. And Lord, we certainly don't stand to think that we have all the answers. And uh, may we never uh, have such an attitude. Uh, May we learn from others and uh, like our friends who believe in this this urgency uh, because of a coming secret rapture. May we, Lord, um, glean from that view with regard to the, the imminent return of your Son, our Lord, our Savior. Um, and may we always remember that uh, you're the only one that has the answers, and uh, we have to pray and, and dig and study uh, to hopefully conclude with a proper interpretation. We thank you that you've made the gospel clear. Justification by faith is clear. Um, the substance of faith is clear. And uh, the person and work of your son is clear. The only way of salvation is clear. But on things like eschatology, uh, Lord, uh, help us to be uh, sound, but also help us to be um, compassionate um, to our brothers and sisters who may uh, disagree. And we do pray that you'll help us to understand correctly for your glory and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.